Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey, this is Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and you're about to hear another episode that was recorded here at Podmax, an awesome experience for entrepreneurs to get on top-rated shows all in one day. I hope you enjoy. Well, hey there. Welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are here in beautiful, historic Trenton, New Jersey. The city actually defines themselves as historic. I put beautiful on it because why not? I've become a fan of the city. Uh, we're here broadcasting live as part of Pod Max. The day continues on, and my goodness, I'm sitting here uh, with Dave Van Horn. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Dave Van Horn. You know him, the president and CEO of PPR Note Company. What is doing, Dave? Oh, it's an, been an incredible day at PodMax. So I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun meeting a lot of great people, doing a lot of great podcasts. Talking a lot, <laughs> not like it, but lots of fun, lots of fun. Yeah, you've, um, I imagine you've been on shows before in many capacities, um, but how does this stack up to that experience? Well, it's definitely different doing podcasts live, for example, right? You get this, it's like you can see, touch, feel, it's just real, it's uh the sound quality is great, the, the people are great, the, you know, it's just very well run, you know? Yeah, that's really, really cool to hear. You are on so many levels. We're going to get into this. You are an entrepreneur, uh, at least from the outside looking in. Do you identify and feel that way yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely. Do? Yeah. Well, I have several companies and businesses. and Yeah. Right. And have you always had that, that vibe? Yes. I've been that way since uh, early as a child. You know, I had my first job in the fourth grade and Paid for my own school books and clothes. and That's an amazing uh, thing to even hear. Fourth grade is 10 years old. What was your first job? Uh, I, I did the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'd get up at like quarter to five in the morning, deliver the paper. And um, actually, um, I, my mom was a single mom with six kids. So I had gotten a job. And, uh, you know, when I was eight, my dad left my mom. And and then um, I, would di I did it to help my mom out, really. Um so I would uh, deliver the paper and it would give me money to, you know, pay for school books or pay for clothes and things like that. And uh, and the good part was um, 
they actually had a, uh, this is going to sound funny, they had a trip to Florida if you like doubled your route and got all these subscriptions. So then I would go door knocking and do sales and I would uh, sell subscriptions. And, and I was 12 years old at the time and I won a trip to Florida for five days as a paper boy. And um, I would have never been on a plane. I would have never been out of anywhere. Like we didn't even go on family vacations unless a family member took us usually alone or something because we never went to on vacation as a family. So my, me and my siblings, we never fight. It's a weird vibe. We never get in arguments. We never fight because we were always separated as kids. Oh, you mean when, you're, when your father left when you were eight, the family split up? Well, uh, at first we were all together, you know, it was, uh, you know, me and my five other siblings. But uh, at, at one point my sisters went to live with, uh, well, some t at one point they went and lived with my father too. And then some, you know, so we got kind of, you know, I don't want to say tossed around, but, you know, we had a great family and had a, had a good life. Uh, my mom did his, you know, great job. Um, she's a saint, love her to death. Um, and then, but, but it was, you know, it was a little more challenging. And then even though I was a middle child, I kind of felt like the oldest child because, you know, my sisters didn't live with us anymore for part of my life. So you were the oldest of the group of the, there? Yeah, I had two younger brothers and three older sisters. And there was a time when we didn't, I didn't live with my sisters. I would only see them periodically. So, you know, we didn't fight over frivolous things like, like some siblings do, you know? Um, and then I had always worked and, um, Always had jobs, you know, always. Wow. Took, so, took trash cans back, cut grass, you know, did everything in the neighborhood, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I was kind of entrepreneurial too. I'd uh, sub out paper routes to other kids and things like that, you know. You're wholesaling paper routes. Pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Franchising the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. So from that age of 10 and then 12 in your teens, you just. Hustling. Yeah, I was always hustling. You stuck with it. You got. You got the bug. You, you got, got the, the bug, yeah. The entrepreneurial yeah. And vibe. Then, and then, even then, when I got older, um, you know, I had an uncle that was a paint salesman, and his largest account, he got me a job with a, a painting contractor when I was, um, I guess I was in college at the time. And, um, you know, I, I did that. Later on, I started my own painting company, and my oldest son still runs that today. But the it's 28 years we've had Van Horn painting, right? But the... Um, one of the things that happened, though, I was working for another painting contractor, um, you know, when I was a young man, got out of college, couldn't get a job, and I got laid off the Friday before Christmas. And when that happened, that I was like, well, that's never going to happen again, because I was really caught off guard. And, um, and that, you know, that's what led me to leave, start my own company. And that was the first real business that I had that was, you know, legitimate real business. It's still here today, right? It's 28 years. Now my son's tripled the business since I had it, but... How did that happen? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, good luck, bad luck. You know, you know what's funny is um, sometimes you look at it as bad luck. I kind of, I'm kind of grateful that it happened because it forced me to do other things. I would have never been as entrepreneurial as I am. I would maybe just stuck working at corporate America or whatever. Um, so I look at it as a kind of a blessing. And then I kind of don't really look at failures as failure. I kind of look at them as oh, I was learning to do something better. You know that kind of thing. Especially somebody in your position who uh, you've you've reached a certain level of success. You, from what I'm hearing, define entrepreneurship. You have a handful of companies, right? And, yeah, I have a couple. Yeah, right. Uh, in uh, and, and you're now running um, pretty significant industry events. 
so to get to that, I'm hearing um, over and over from people, as you just said, that failure is is an ingredient. It's necessary. It's part of the equation. Oh yeah, I was just telling someone uh, earlier today that you know I'm good. I'm building a billion dollar company, right? It might not be a billion today, but it's it's going to be as long as I live long enough. And I've had uh, losses, you know, we were, ta- I guess we were talking about losses. I said, yeah, I've, I've lost a quarter million dollars before I go, but you can't have a billion dollar company if you haven't lost a quarter million along the way. There's no way because it takes that. Let's really uh, expand on that for a minute. You can't have a billion dollar company without along the way at some point losing a quarter of a million dollars. And that I I find that hard to believe. I mean, I guess you could, but it just seems unimaginable to me that you could have succeeded that long without having any kind of losses along the way. I just don't. And maybe, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I don't know that I am. Yeah. And and really what that's saying to the person listening, whether they aspire to have a billion dollar company or not, the point is clear. Um, you have to take some level of risk that may or may not pay off. You have to reevaluate and you have to be willing to to take action and execute in in a very specific way. And there's going to be a series of lots of ups and lots of downs. Correct. So even, even from that loss, there was a lot of things I learned that are going to enable me to build the billion-dollar company and to not make the same mistakes that would prevent me from having a billion-dollar company. So it winds it, up it, becoming— It ends up being yeah. the cost of— tuition or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, going back to the, um, tuition analogy for school, um, what was your, your schooling like? Well, I was pretty lucky. I went to a, like a Catholic grade school, which was, you know, parochial school, which was fine. And then when my dad left it, you know, it, it became harder. And that was one of the reasons I got the job so I could pay for clothes and books and things. Cause at the time they charged for that. And then I was a pretty good student with grades. So my mom kind of tricked me. She was like, why don't you take this test to this private college? And I go, well, we can't afford that. Why would I take that? And she's like, oh, just see how you do. And then I go, but yeah, but it's out of state. I don't know that I want to do that. And it was a college prep school. And she said, um, oh, don't worry. You won't get in. Just go down and see how you'll do. So I go down and take the test. And you kind of know where this is going. I end up getting a four-year scholarship to this private school. But I didn't even have clothes. Um, luckily, my mom had a friend that cleaned houses for someone, and they their son went to boarding school, and I actually was able to get his clothes. So I would wear his like suits and sport coats and things like that. And so it worked out. No one really knew. And then um, you know I was the only person in my family that ever completed college or anything. Wow. And and you say no one really knew what that you you was poor. I was the poorest kid in school. And you basically. felt that way. Oh, I knew I was. Every kid, as soon as we turned 16, all the kids got brand new cars but me. <laughs> How did you process that? Was there shame? Was there... No, no, I mean, I could, you know, my friends were cool. They would come pick me up. <laughs> they didn't even, I don't even know that they knew or cared. Um, it was funny, years later, I was talking with a friend at like a reunion, and he, and. I don't know how it came up. And he goes, you know, I never realized you were in that situation. He goes, I just never knew. It wasn't really in it. You know, you didn't really feel that way at the time. You know, I never felt poor. My mom never made us feel poor or anything. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Like we never, I think poor is a state of mind in a way. There you go. But at 10 years old, uh, and especially from the turning point of your father leaving, you, you immediately or shortly thereafter jumped into the workforce knowing that, okay, I, I got to pull some weight here. Well, you knew at some level you were because you were on a medical card or you had food stamps, that kind of thing. You know, you knew growing up 
wrapped stuff. Sure. It, it was, you couldn't hide it like at the store or something. Um, I, I'm guessing that with your strong work ethic from the very beginning, early age through today, um, as, as a young child, that colored your world that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work myself out of this. I'm going to make yeah. sure that I personally and those I love do not. Well, yeah, I was always work. My mom always ingrained in us do a good job. Even if it was a lousy job, never burn bridges, never quit, never, you know, like, so we, ne I never quit a job. I always gave notice. I always did a good job. It could have been a crappy job. I did the best I could and it, it paid off, but and I thought I could work myself into success. And in fact, I had two jobs, two full-time jobs for 20 years. So, but I realized I finally had an aha moment that that is not the way to wealth. The way to wealth was leverage, right? And, and that took me a while to figure that out. I thought more, you know, if I just worked more, I'd have more money. And that's not really how it works. Meaning in a corporate environment, full-time? Well, in any environment. You, you just work yourself to death. You're not leveraging anything. What I realized today is you need to leverage capital, human capital, cap, real money, you leverage technology, leverage relationships. I didn't know about all that stuff until later in life. Hey there, entrepreneurs. Eric Cabral here, founder of On Air Brands and host of the Entrepreneur Circle and Capital Hacking. I wanted to share something truly unique with you that we've created called Pod Max, which is an amazing opportunity to connect you with major podcasts to help you share your fascinating stories with their communities. This unique invitation-only event includes interviews with you on top-rated business podcasts all in one day. It also provides a unique networking opportunity with high-performance guests and thought leaders who are authors, coaches and consultants, investors, speakers, executives, you name it. These are the type of people that you need to be around. We also provide industry expert keynotes to hit our stage to share insights on podcasting, investing, marketing to help you take things to the next level. And the cool thing about Podmax is that it has a multimedia agency engine behind it with on-air brands to provide social media promotions before and after the event to share your brand new shows with your network. So hit the apply now button at podmax.co and I hope to see you at the next Podmax event. Well, let's jump to modern day philosophy for you in that regard. <laughs> what uh, break some of that down for us? What are the most important ingredients? You started touching upon them. Well, I mean, like I've had many coaches, you know, like uh, I've had different coaches based on the size of my company or the size of the employees or the size of the revenue. You know, okay, you're a million in revenue or under, you have this coach, or you have under five million, you have this coach, or you're under 20 million, you have this coach. You know, so you get different type of coaching. But I had one of my best coaches was a guy named Lewis Schiff, the author of Business Brilliant out of New York, uh, the Inc. 5000 guy. And he was like, what one thing would catapult you or your in your personal life or your business life in the next six months or 12 months? That type of question. And then you would ask yourself that question every six or 12 months. And it's a, it's a really important question. What could you leverage that would catapult you? So it's really, it's like a 10X type question, you know, and it's a great question, right? Is it, what's holding you back? What's blocking you right now? What one thing that you're missing in your world that would really dramatically change things? Yeah, I find that we, I, I've, I, I've heard that question my whole life and I just wasn't in a spot to really accept it or do anything about it. I would excuse it. I was hiding all my, my self-identity behind fear. Uh, but there, there has to be a time that until you're ready to uh, um, admit that question and go forth, nothing's going to happen. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, it's just like... Um... You know, like when I 
I'm not much of a public speaker, right? And, um, you know, you would start speaking. I used to get worried about, I'm like, oh, I'm not that good a speaker. How's this going? But then I would read stories of like, you know, famous speakers where they didn't have much success either, or, you know, they, you know, it could have been a religious leader, anybody. Well, they only had a certain percentage took the message, right? So don't beat yourself up so bad. Not everybody's ready to receive your message. You know, it's kind of the same idea. We're not always ready to receive what's coming our way, right? So there could be something right in front of us, an opportunity, a message, but you have to be ready to receive it kind of thing. How do you, on a personal level, why are you laughing? I don't know. Yeah, I love it. How do you, on a personal level, I love the aspiration to uh, to reach a billion-dollar company, no easy or small feat. How do you personally, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, what have you, prepare yourself day in and day out for that journey? Well, I have a 10-year written vision for that company. Um, and then I work backwards from that. Um, and then I have a, you know, five-year plan. I have a, really the biggest one is a, th a three-year plan, a three-hag, I call it a hairy, audacious goal, right? And I keep moving my three-hag every quarter, right? So this week coming up, actually, we do an off-site yearly planning session with my executive team. We go to like a bed and breakfast, the whole team. And for two days, we sit around and plan the next year and plan the first quarter. But really, we have this moving three-year projection every quarter. So I already know where we're going three years from now. I already know what, I'm, I already know what we made next year because we already bought that product. We bought the product this year, what we make our revenue next year. I already know my revenue is going to be $65 million next year. I already know that for that company. Is this through PPR No Company? Yeah, like I already know that because we already bought that product. I already know what we make on that product. I already know because there's a lag. There's a 12 to 18 month lag, for example. So I know what I need to buy next year for the following year. I already know next year I'm going to raise a minimum of 120 million in capital. I already know that. I know I'll do it. I already know how I'm going to do it. So I, I map it out. And then we map out, you know, once I set those, that 10 year visions part of it and and then I readjust and the same way with my quarterly, I do, you know, a three-year plan. Then I do a one-year plan. I do a quarterly plan. And then we break it down into maps and we map out how we're achieving each goal and then each department and there's KPIs and everybody's tied into it and everybody's bonus based on what they do. Isn't that the, that's the only way to it, right? If you took exactly what you just said, not mapping it out, not having a plan, not having a, a path. It, it literally could not happen without that single component? Well, you need two components. Um, so I'll give you an example. I'm more of a visionary. So I, you, sure, you, I you know, worked on the 10-year plan, but I also need an operations person. And I'm not that person. I'm not very good at that piece, but I know I'm not. There you go. And I have people, you know, I surround, surround myself with really good people and they're just as important as I am. They might not be able to see the same vision but that's my job to create the vision or, or hire somebody that has the vision and their jobs to do the operations. I'm not, I'm just not good at operations. I'm only good at really raising capital or whatever. That's my thing. And it, for me to, you know, I'm not a good typist. I don't speak French, you know, I, there I, don't, you go. I don't play guitar. I, and, and the importance, but I know of, what I'm good at. I can do some things. That's the, that's the soundbite right there, right? Yeah, For the person listening, you have to know your strengths, your weaknesses, what you're good at, and then fill in the gaps. Correct. And you've been, you've mastered that. I, I believe I have it up until about age 40 ish, 45. I was not that good at that. 
And then later on, I really got to know myself better. And uh, I think certain things have helped. Uh, meditation helps, you know, work, you know, everything. Just just learning and reading. I read a lot. How how has the journey been looking back on the past chunk of time? Were you were you always rock solid in your strengths or was there some stumbling and you figured it out as you went along? Oh no, what I did a, it look like? I was a jack of all jerks. No, I've had, a jack of all jerks. <laughs> I've you know, no, I've had multiple pads and businesses, you know, it, you know, I went into real estate. I, I owned a title company. I sold insurance. I've done an, a lot of different jobs. Um, you know, all kinds of things done commercial real estate, done rate, a lot of fundraising, had, you know, had a lot of different positions, was a property manager, did flips, did we buy houses business, did, you know, all these different things, contractor. So you, when you run through a gamut of things like that, it's almost shiny object like, but they were all very related though. They were all real estate related or related to my audience, you know, my, my client base, you know. Did you, did you have an idea? Cause you are the, uh, the founder, the creator, the host of the mid Atlantic summit. Yes. Uh, did you, which is, which is pretty new, right? The past few years. Yeah, but I, I used to run, you may or may not know this, I used to run a real estate investor networking group called Ring, and I started that back in, I guess, the early 2000s, and uh, it started out with 12 people at lunch, and it grew into five states, six cities from Baltimore and New York with 8,000 people in our database. So that was, you know, prior. So to run an event years later is not as challenging because I had pretty big base, and even at PPR, we have probably 30,000 people in our base, you know. What accounts for that sort of growth specifically to bring those people, to attract those people, whether it's to starting the real estate investment group and expanding into states and then bringing the tens of thousands of people and then the, the Mid-Atlantic Summit, which attracts a nice crowd? What's the common thread there? I think it's education. And um, yeah, it's a good point. What is the common thread? It's add value first, you know, educate people. Um, part of that, I think that's what it is. It's more of the value add instead of, uh, you know, just selling something or taking something. It's more of giving first, mm. you know, that kind of mentality and then impactful investing. I'm into impactful investing. My brand, the hidden entrepreneur founded on the premise that I spent a lifetime hiding behind fear using that as an excuse for everything. Can you share a time with us where you were confronted with a boatload of fear and you could have cowered in the corner, but you knew you had to go right through it? Um, I think the biggest fear that I've had is fear of success has been the biggest thing that has held me back over the years. Um, there's certain things you know that you could have done, the, that you could have been a successful sooner. You could have thought bigger. You could have taken different chances. You could have leveraged more things. You could have asked for help. You could have done a lot of different things that you don't, we tend to not do. So I think, I think that's a big one. Sometimes I think we're afraid of success. Uh, sometimes we never feel successful. Sometimes we always feel we could lose it all. You know, how do you feel in that statement? Um, sometimes I feel that way. I, I, I think of my children, my sons will joke with me sometimes like, you know, you can spend some money or you can live, do this, but they don't realize, sometimes they don't realize that I'm satisfied, you know, I'm happy with what I have and I don't have to be, you know, flaunt a lot of things or to me, I'd rather give back or go help somebody than, you know, 
spend a lot of money on myself or something. Where did that happiness come from? Was it uh, external finances or did it start inside? I think it's internal. I just, I'm content. I, I, I think of myself as ambitious and content. I know that's a yeah. weird combination. <laughs> well, it makes sense though. I don't know that it's for everybody, but. <laughs> yeah. Where does the desire for the $1 billion goal come from, do you think? I don't think it's really a billion dollar goal. It, it's because we're going to become a multi-billion dollar company. I already know that. I, what I what it is, is more about community stabilization. That's really what we do PPR no code for. We love being able to modify people's mortgages, keep them in their homes. We love getting distressed properties back into the tax rolls and back on the books and out of the blighted areas. Uh, we love throwing events like Mid-Atlantic Summit and helping people uh, build and preserve their wealth. And, and, um, and then we donate all those, all those proceeds to the homeless charities from the Mid-Atlantic Summit. So we don't make a dime from that. We, but I do run another group for high net worth people called Strategic Investor Alliance, where it's a shared values group that is invite only for high net worth. It acts like Yelp for alternative investments. So really my thing is to help people build and preserve their wealth, no matter where they are, they could be in bankruptcy. They could be losing their home. They could be, could be a bank. I'm going to help the bank get their bad assets off their books. I'm going to help investors get a better return so they can retire sooner or find financial freedom or whatever that is. So I'm all about helping people, you know, share, build, and preserve their wealth. Why you brought homeless into the conversation? I, I see that. Um, what's the relevance there for you? Why is that important? Well, one of the reasons um, we did the Mid-Atlantic Summit was I picked a charity. I wanted to do a good event where no one was allowed to sell anything so that all the participants would have to bring their A-game. And I think the theory there was, yeah, I could have done it and sold tickets and made money, but I, number one, I don't really need the money. Uh, number two, I think it was better to create an environment um, that was not salesy. It was more about connectivity and connection and, and giving back and uh doing something impactful. And the cool part was, you know, the last event, we raised a lot of money for a project home, which is homeless home helps fight homelessness in uh, Philadelphia and Detroit. And I just thought that was more impactful since I'm from Philadelphia. And um, I think Philly does a pretty good job on homelessness compared to other cities, especially like LA and San Francisco and Portland. And you know, I travel a lot. So you believe that everything in life happens for a reason. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of good that can come from it. I, I'm hoping to have a ripple effect from that event where people can go back. You know, we had attendees from Dubai, Hong Kong, everywhere. And I, I'm hoping that they saw what we did at the event and said, you know, I'm going to go do that in my community. I'm going to create some kind of event or do something and hopefully have some kind of ripple effect and, and donate to our charity or help homelessness where I live. Or maybe they'll learn from the good job that they've done here in Philadelphia with homelessness and take it back to another city. Maybe it's Baltimore or somewhere else, you know, what could we say to the person listening through everything that we've said already? What still needs to be said? What do they need to hear? What do they need to know going forward? You know, it's more like the more you give the more you get. It's the go giver type mindset of, I think the greatest uh, reward, you know, I've done, I mentioned impactful invest, investing and it started for me early on, you know, I started buying homes with credit cards and fixing them up and became a millionaire and, you know, did all these things with real estate. And then I quickly realized, well, could I do something more impactful? And, and, and in the beginning, I, I started renting houses through Section 8 to disabled people. And then next thing you know, I was doing houses for community action for battered women. And next thing you know, I 
you know, I opened up a drug and alcohol recovery center and then, you know, started this event for the homeless. And then I real what I realized was it really wasn't about me. It wasn't about how much money I had. Um, you know, if you have five million in the bank, you have 10 million in the bank, you have 50 million in the bank. It becomes a number on a statement or a spreadsheet or whatever you want to call it. It becomes pretty meaningless pretty quickly when you really think about the most important things in life, which could be, you know, your family or your friends or time or it's really not money. The most important thing is time. So and then what I realize is the more that I give, the more that I get and I get more reward out of the goodness of it than I do out of any of the other crap. You know, it's just understood. Yeah, it's really the opposite of what most people think and think. And I'm not super materialistic type. You know, I, I believe almost I'm not saying I'm a minimalist or anything, but it, it's it's not that's not what's really important. And and you'll quickly find that out when you get to learn your, more about yourself. Or, hmm. uh, How do people find you? Where do we direct them to follow up this conversation? They don't want to find me now, probably. <laughs> you're, you're pulling all this stuff out of me. Um, I guess the easiest place to find me is at pprnoteco.com. Um, definitely on Bigger Pockets all the time. And uh, we have a LinkedIn group called Distress uh, Mortgages Group on LinkedIn, but on bigger pockets, we do answer questions and you can ask me pretty much anything. And we literally answer questions daily to try to help other people in the forums and things. By giving value, right? By giving, giving value. Yeah. Giving, giving, giving. Well, this has been extraordinary. What a great case study in a life continuing to be well lived. Thank you, Dave yeah, Van Yeah, my Horn. pleasure. My pleasure. It's a lot of fun here. I appreciate your time. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.